0: Welcome to the Weekly Appellate Report for November 24th, 2017, Friday after Thanksgiving. I'm Brian Cardell. Happy to welcome you to the Daily Journal's weekly podcast, Considering Salient Appellate and Constitutional Law Questions. Got a good show for you today, something you can consume. It's got absolutely zero calories after yesterday's hopefully indulgent meal. We'll welcome Alex Abdo, Senior Staff Attorney at the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University, who will explain why it's time to stop relying on the Fourth Amendment to do the work the First Amendment is better suited for, in cases where modern, technologically sophisticated government surveillance threatens not simply personal privacy, but more fundamentally, individuals' ability and freedom to conceive and voice dissenting speech. Abdo's argument is timely, as next week the U.S. Supreme Court takes up the case of Carpenter versus the United States, in which the warrantless collection of cell tower information indicated roughly a defendant's whereabouts over the course of several months, presenting the court once again with the question of whether the Fourth Amendment and its constituent parts like the third-party doctrine provides adequate protections in a world where modern technology continues to make official surveillance ever easier. But before hearing from Alex, let's get to our opening briefs. The 4th Appellate District rendered a decision in a constitutional challenge this week, one in which the San Bernardino public defender claimed indigent defendant's Sixth Amendment rights were violated by a California rule of court that did not in all cases guarantee appointed counsel at Superior Court Appellate Division Proceedings. The 4th District found no constitutional infirmity in the rule, citing Supreme Court case law saying the Sixth Amendment right to counsel does not apply in appellate fora. Our Sacramento Beat reporter Malcolm McLaughlin Cover this ruling for our newspaper and joins us now. Malcolm, welcome to the podcast. Oh, thanks for having me. Interesting ruling here in the, the fourth appellate district, Morris v. Superior Court, uh, brought by the San Bernardino public defender, Phyllis Morris. Uh, it's a constitutional challenge, uh, claiming a particular California rule of court didn't pass constitutional muster. Uh, it, that rule pertains to counsel uh, being provided to certain indi- indigent defendants in uh, the Superior Court's appellate division. But tell me a, a little bit more about the, the claim here. Well, it's a very,
1: very unusual case that, uh, so the, the defender, um, they had an indigent defendant who had a couple of misdemeanor charges relating to a driving under the influence. They managed to get some, uh, some of the evidence in that case suppressed. Uh, the, the charges were dropped. Prosecutors attempted to refile charges and make an argument to not suppress that evidence. Uh, and that was through the San Bernardino Court's appellate division and Morris turned around and said you know filed a motion saying okay we're gonna to continue to represent this defendant she's indigent she doesn't speak English very well she's not going not gonna get equal justice if you know she doesn't have someone to defend her so basically it got kicked up this request got kicked up to the fourth district who turned around and denied her on every count um, and it was a very very unusual claim but, you know, you 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 have to think that there's sort of a deeper agenda here. Um, Morris did not talk to me, or her office did not talk to me for the story, but, you know, she is sort of known as somebody who has made peace with the union down there. She took over a pretty troubled office. She's made a lot of uh, changes in terms of technology. And it was the kind of argument that a self-styled reformer might make, um, and it kind of You know, even though it her claims under the Sixth and Fourteenth Amendments uh, didn't get anywhere, it is kind of taking place within a larger uh, debate about indigent defendants and equal protection, protection. You know, that's happening in California and the country
0: right now. Yeah, as you say, there's some some momentum behind uh, some of those other movements, but the uh, Fourth Appellate District did not seem to find this as a particularly close case, right? You, as you wrote,
1: no, no, she lost on she lost on every count, um, and this was actually written by the uh, presiding district uh, or presiding judge of the Second District, uh, Ramirez, um, and you know he systematically took her down on every count. I mean, he had one part where he cited. A, um, case law and said, well, the Sixth Amendment doesn't apply to appellate proceedings. Um, that's, you know, the, the, the right to counsel uh, in a criminal proceeding. Um, and part of the reasoning there is that if she loses this appellate case, the defendant, it's not that she goes to jail or, or pays a fine or suffers whatever criminal consequence then. It would just kick her back to the criminal court. So it's kind of related to that. He also, um, turned down her, uh, 14th Amendment claims, um, on that, on that basis. Um, yeah, I mean, basically, you know, she didn't really have a leg to stand on, it appears, in constitutional law. And I've, you know, I've never really seen somebody making, uh... these particular arguments but at the same time she's saying well you know we 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 have this defendant and um... you know she's not going to get a fair shake so i mean i i would kind of put it in the context of um a couple of other movements that are going on uh, particularly in california right now uh, the debate over money bail whether it is both constitutional and whether it's effective and then also uh... looking at a related matter of um... Counties providing counsel in immigration cases, which is a- another area of law where you do not have a constitutional right to court-appointed counsel, but the the same arguments that, say, San Francisco County or some of the places, LA County, that have invested in this, say, like, if you have a lawyer in an gr- immigration court, your chances um, of getting a good outcome are, you know, multiple times better The same argument would apply in an appellate case, you know, so maybe it's sort of a call to say, well, you know, maybe we should be funding this, Um, you know, maybe justice really does require this, even if the Constitution does not.
0: Sure. So perhaps uh, an effort to signal to, even if the appellate courts don't have a a whole lot of precedent to to decide her way, perhaps a a signal to other folks within the California power structure, like the legislature, that this is an an issue that might uh, deserve some attention.
1: Well, and one thing that I found really interesting about the arguments that um, the the defender Phyllis Morris made was, so she argued that the San Bernardino Court had a constitutional uh, requirement to provide counsel, and then her office had, you know, offered to be counsel in this particular case, but she also made an argument that the court could not require her office to be the ones who provided the counsel which is basically um you know covering herself in case she won <laughs> um, that you know she wasn't um creating some you know big expensive new mandate for her already overburdened office uh so it, yeah it was a very very interesting um set of, of legal arguments and i'm just it just makes me wonder if we're going to see more action around um appellate indigent appellate defense uh, down the road
0: Sure. Well, if we do, then we'll, we'll uh, have you back on to, to tell us more about it. Uh, but for now, we'll, we'll go ahead and leave it there. Malcolm McLaughlin, our Sacramento Beat reporter, thanks for being on the podcast. I appreciate it. Thank you. One place where the effect of Sixth Amendment protections is less than certain is Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, where this month an ongoing capital prosecution of a suspected terrorist led not to the defendant's conviction, but rather to the conviction... And detention of Marine Brigadier General John Baker, who released three civilian defense attorneys from the case after concerns apparently arose that the attorneys meetings with their client were being surveilled by the United States, frustrating their ability to provide competent counsel. General Baker was convicted on contempt of court charges for releasing the attorneys. David Lubin is a professor of philosophy and Law at Georgetown Law School. He studied and taught extensively on legal ethics, just war theory, national security, and international criminal law, and is also an editor at Security, the richly informative blog covering the intersection of national security and the rule of law. He joins us now to give us a better sense of what exactly is going on in this prosecution and to describe the ethical concerns he says have been long ongoing in Guantanamo military tribunals. Professor Lubin, welcome to the podcast.
2: Glad to be here. Thanks for asking me.
0: Maybe to start, could could you walk me through some of the the facts here on the ground in Guantanamo Bay, Cuba, that led to the, the conviction of contempt of, of court of a, an American Brigadier General, Brigadier General John Baker of the Marines, um, and a 21-day sentence. How how did we we get here? This springs from the defense work that Brigadier General Baker was doing uh, on behalf of uh, Abd al-Rahim al-Nashiri, uh, of course uh, identified as perhaps the mastermind behind the USS coal bombing in 2000, which killed 17 soldiers. Um, but we we'll, walk we'll me through how we got to... Um, Brigadier General Baker being behind bars?
2: Okay, well, first of all, Brigadier General Baker is uh, the head of the Military Commission's Defense Council. So that means that he's supervising uh, both the military defense lawyers uh, and the uh, civilian defense lawyers. Uh, there's been an ongoing worry that some governmental agency, presumably the CIA, but uh, it's more than I know, uh, has uh, been monitoring uh wiring up interview rooms and uh, other places where confidential conversations might be had between the uh, lawyers um and their clients and that there've been several well-known incidents uh one of them was uh it turned out that the smoke detectors in the interview rooms were uh, uh actually microphones uh, it turns out that one of the interpreters uh, who was part of the defense team had actually been an interrogator of the defendants and uh, had uh, worked uh, worked for the, uh, the CIA in the past. Uh, and that's been an ongoing concern. So this seems to have come to a head when uh, new information that is still classified, so we don't know what the details are. Uh, came to uh, the defense team's uh, attention that uh, the problem hadn't been solved. And as a result, three of the civilian death penalty specialists, and the, the technical term is learned counsel. Learned counsel means a death penalty specialist, uh, said that they just uh, couldn't ethically go forward in a situation where they couldn't be confident that uh, they were having confidential conversations with their client. And in fact, they couldn't even tell uh, their client what the problem was because the information that they got was classified. We still don't know exactly what that information is, but somehow it is confirmation that uh, the, the problem of monitoring is still going on. So they uh, approached uh, General Baker and uh, asked to be excused. Uh, they uh, had to withdraw because it would be a violation of legal ethics for them to go forward, and he approved of that. Uh, Judge Fatt, who is uh, conducting the trial, said that it wasn't wasn't up to General Baker to excuse the lawyers, that he had to approve it, and uh, it turns out that there were actually two conflicting sets of rules about that, in one of them being the military commission manuals and the other a set of rules based on them, General Baker refused. And uh, then he refused to answer questions from the judge about it. So the judge sentenced him to 21 days of uh, confinement for contempt of court. After a day, the uh, convening authority, who is the civilian uh, uh, in charge of the military commissions, uh, Harvey Rishikov, uh, released General Baker. But the standoff uh, is... Is continuing. The three civilian lawyers still won't go to Guantanamo and say they can't continue to participate. Uh, a couple of days ago, one military lawyer who's left said that he's got the same ethical problems that the civilians had, and that he was he reached that conclusion. Uh, at the same time, but there was a lengthier process of ethics review in the JAG Corps. So he said that uh, he really can't represent Nashiri any longer. And right now we are in a situation where the judge um, he wants to go forward with the trial. And uh, the lawyers say that ethically they can't go
0: forward with representing him. Uh, maybe just to, to drill down slightly, ha- are those purported ethical violations of monitoring attorney and client communications, are, are they uh, established or still a- alleged? Um, do, do you know?
2: Well, it's, it's, it's impossible to say what, what's established and what isn't because that information continues to be classified. The ethics expert, uh, Ellen Yaroshevsky, who gave an opinion to uh, the defense counsel who withdrew, said that uh, she doesn't have access to anything except the limited, you know, limited information that could be made public. And that information is that um, there have been these ongoing concerns that the prosecution had said that the problem was more or less fixed and that new information still classified has come out saying that or that, that led them to believe that the problem isn't fixed. The specific ethics concerns are multiple. First of all, uh, lawyers have to be able to have confidential conversations with their clients in order to represent them competently and there's an ethical requirement of competent representation. There's an ethical requirement that they keep confidences. Uh, There's an ethical requirement that they keep uh, communicating with their client if there is classified information they can't uh, tell their client it would lead the client to uh, possibly change decisions like the decision about whether to waive confidentiality, then that's an ethics violation. And finally, there's an ethics rule saying that if you can't go forward ethically with the case, then you must, not may, but must withdraw from the case.
0: Um, now, this may sound like a, a, an elementary question, but, but from where are those ethics rules derived uh, for procedures like this um, on Guantanamo Bay? Uh, you know, obviously... They, they don't come from the, the ABA's rules of professional conduct. Uh, do even, um, ha, to what extent does the, the Constitution's Sixth Amendment guarantee to adequate counsel apply to, to defendants in trials like this, uh, do, 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 or does it have application?
2: Well, first of all, the ethics rules uh, come from uh, the state in which the lawyers uh, hold their law licenses. And for the military lawyers, uh, their ethics rules, hold, uh, various JAG Corps, and uh, even though those rules sometimes differ from state to state on the ones that I just mentioned, all the states and the uh, various JAG Corps have the same rules of confidentiality, competence, client communication, required withdrawal if you can't go forward ethically. Now, uh, is there a constitutional basis for this? Uh, it's unsettled whether the Fifth and Sixth Amendments, or uh, which parts of the Fifth and Sixth Amendments apply in Guantanamo, But uh, the Military Commissions Act that establishes the Military Commissions incorporates rights and uh, the rights that are protected under the Fifth and Sixth Amendments are all part of the Military Commissions Act.
0: Military tribunals and prosecutions um, of enemy combatants have taken place over a long period of time, generally outside of the the usual constraints of of, criminal constitutional procedure. um, You know, what... What, what, what specifically about um, trials like this, or prosecutions like this, what what does this case maybe demonstrate about sort of the, the broader tensions that folks always understand to be at work in Guantanamo Bay where there are very dangerous folks that have perhaps committed some really serious acts of war against the country? Um, you know, that concern, of course, butting up against um, the very American desire to uh, live under a rule of law, you know, is this sort of just a latest Encapsulation of there being a you know situations being difficult when those two come into tension? Uh, has, has, has this encapsulated that things are, are worse in these sorts of trials than they may have been in previous criminal tribunals kind of what what are the, the broader strokes uh, to this uh, this episode?
2: Well you know the Guantanamo commissions are really extraordinary for a number of reasons. First of all, the Supreme Court, in the uh, 2006 Hamdan decision said that what were then the rules of the military commissions at Guantanamo actually didn't uh, comport with the Geneva Convention the requirement of uh, of uh, fair trials in military settings so that was uh, extraordinary and the various iterations of the Military Commissions Act after that uh, on 2006 2009 various sets of regulations have all tried to fix that, to um, bring them up to what you might call civilized standards. That's the term that, uh, civilized is the term that the Geneva Conventions use. Uh, what makes these odds, secondly, is uh, that the defendants, at least some of them, uh, including the Shiri, were tortured by the United States government. And that's a legal issue in, uh, in these cases. It has to do with the uh, admission of evidence. Also, mitigators for the death penalty that would make the death penalty impossible to somebody who's been tortured, and uh, that seems to have been enormous concern to the CIA. The allegations, of torture, and the CIA doesn't want to uh, doesn't want information about the torture to come out. So the third extraordinary thing about these commissions is uh, in other military commissions, the idea that an agency that's not part of the court would uh, wire up the, the premises to survey what's going on, I mean, that just, uh, just never happened. Now, it might be that there's uh, monitoring of ongoing criminal activity. Now, that happens in prisons. But here, Nishiri's been in custody for 13 years, He was tortured and interrogated in CIA black sites, and uh, uh, there's no plausible uh, reason to think that he has any intelligence left to give. So this is entirely monitoring for some other reason, and it's uh, a matter of guesswork what that reason might be. It might simply be that uh, the intelligence community wants to find out what's being said about uh, trial strategy the more likely what's being said about torture. And, and from the point of view of uh, the intelligence community, Nashiri is in Guantanamo forever, and uh, it might not be as uh, important a concern that he's ever tried and convicted than that the information uh, you know, about what you know, what's being said about torture doesn't really come out. I mean, this is all just speculation, because I... You know, because I've got no idea what the thinking is behind you know, the CIA wiring the place up and uh, you know I, I can't even swear that uh, that the agency that wired it up is the CIA but uh, why why do they want to do that? Not for intelligence purposes. so it it seems as if it's just more important to them that they know what's going on in those confidential lawyer client conversations than it is that the trial go forward. It's hard to see why else, uh, there would be such constant surveillance. And that surveillance is something that makes this different from other military commissions.
0: As you said, these sorts of ethical concerns have been ongoing for a while and sort of coming to a head perhaps in the most prominent way now. Uh, do you think that makes the, the current events, the current episode, uh, have the, the the potential to be an, an inflection point here, perhaps after which uh, you know, procedures might be be altered or the, the use of such prosecutions be, be changed um, or reconsidered? Um, how, how do you or do you think you know, this uh, episode could be forgotten and things would remain the same a- afterward? Well,
2: something's got to change because at the moment, there are no defense lawyers that say that they could ethically participate. And uh, even though there might be an effort to bring other lawyers on, I don't see how ethically another lawyer could agree to participate because the ethics rules don't allow you to take on a case in which you couldn't provide ethical representation. So uh, if there's no defense counsel at all, then the trials can't go forward. So it seems like the thing that has to be fixed is uh, that there has to be some way to guarantee that there are confidential locations where the lawyers can talk with their clients, and uh, as it is, there, there was some uh, testimony yesterday in uh, Judge Spatz's uh, courtroom, uh, in which there was some indication that there might be some confidential locations. The problem is, how do you guarantee that once uh, you know, once a room is found, that uh, it stays confidential? That it's so you know what needs to be fixed to make the trials go forward. Is, uh, is simply uh, the guarantee of a confidential space so that the defense lawyers can talk to their client. You know, the thing that's really hard to know right now is where exactly this is heading because, uh, um, in, you know, I've, I read this lengthy transcript of uh, the hearing yesterday in uh, Judge Speth's courtroom and uh, he is completely frustrated and angry. Uh, the defense counsel are Trying, you know, trying hard not to budge. But uh, at one point in the past, he had actually uh, wanted a lawyer not connected with this incident, wanted a lawyer to appear as a witness. The lawyer refused, and he sent uh, armed federal marshals to arrest the guy um, and bring him, force him to testify. And that lawyer I I saw in the news yesterday is now suing the government for. uh, Uh, something like $1.3 million for, uh, and this is because Judge Spath had, you know, sent, you know, the lawyer said they came in with, uh, you know, pointing their weapons at him um, and dragged him off. And uh, in yesterday's hearing, Judge Spath kind of hinted that the same thing might happen with these defense lawyers. He doesn't want to do it, but uh, he was uh, reminding the defense counsel that um, he's done it in the past.
0: uh, Maybe just one last one as to Brigadier General um, Baker what uh, what is his status does he remain in his position after this uh, this this episode
2: uh, he is now uh, recused from it and uh, another military lawyer is uh, temporarily in charge
0: okay uh, we'll then we'll certainly stay tuned uh, to the the events that unfold uh, tremendously compelling and uh, professor David Lubin professor of philosophy and law at Georgetown Law School and an editor at just security thanks so much for for being here to chat with us about it I really appreciate it Well, it's it's my pleasure. Alex Abdo spent many of the years following 9-11 working for the ACLU's Speech, Privacy, and Technology Project, where he worked on cases challenging the constitutionality of several government surveillance programs. Now with the Knight First Amendment Institute at Columbia University, Alex contends that Fourth Amendment protections are often inadequate against governmental surveillance, which is increasingly aided by the rapid sophistication of modern technology. He joins us now to explain why he thinks courts must employ the First Amendment to do the work the Fourth Amendment cannot. Alex, welcome to the podcast.
3: Thanks so much for having me, Brian.
0: So you recently penned an article for the Yale Law Journal Forum titled, Why Rely on the Fourth Amendment to Do the Work of the First? Um, a timely question to pose, certainly, is as, assuming the U.S. Supreme Court will consider the case of Carpenter versus U.S. Um, and, and in it, if not squarely, at least obliquely, wrestle with the question as to, to whether the Fourth Amendment is really still um, up to the task of, of really securing the ramparts of personal privacy that the, uh, the framers envisioned when they wrote the Fourth Amendment and uh, to make sure folks would be secure in their, their homes and, and persons and papers. Um, or if instead, uh, modern technology and its ubiquity and sophistication um, has found some, some pretty fundamental loopholes in the Fourth Amendment doctrine. And, and so uh, perhaps that might require courts to, to look elsewhere, perhaps, as you suggest, in, to uh, the First Amendment for the sort of protections um, necessary to keep folks secure. Um, but before we dive into to Carpenter and and the arguments that you you lay out in, in your piece and the framework that you describe and how it might um, play play into a case like carpenter just wanted to ask you about about your work you've been really at the the center of some litigation that's involved government programs and congressional legislation that's sort of existed right at the the frontiers between what we see as constitutionally permissible government surveillance and then on the other side um, you know personal privacy perhaps someone would argue that some of these programs like the Patriot Act uh, the foreign intelligence surveillance act uh, Guantanamo um, Bay detentions and the like, uh, the NSA bulk collection um, program, some of those overstepped uh, constitutional boundaries. I'd uh, just be curious how, how, how being steeped kind of in this, this area of law, this personal privacy versus government surveillance balance, uh, has sort of sh- shaped your view on the Fourth Amendment and its strengths and weaknesses and how it might have influenced your position here that uh, the First Amendment might be a good uh, place to look for uh, protections of personal privacy.
3: Yeah, absolutely. So, you know, I, I think of the work that I've done over the last 10 years as, yeah, you know, really focusing on how to constrain, uh, overreaching majoritarian power, uh, in a time of fear. Um, and, you know, it has been the case throughout our country's history that in times of great fear and times of perceived and real national crises, um, political institutions, overstep individual rights uh, and uh, curtail those individual rights. And usually the first thing to go is the freedom to dissent, um, the freedom to question government authority, because uh, in one way or another, dissent can pose kind of fundamental challenges to authority. And so that's where that's where authority tends to direct its, um, its might first. Um, and, you know, the first few years of my time at the ACLU, I focused on uh, post 9-11 interrogation policy. Uh, and focus on uh, helping to expose some of the worst abuses of the Bush administration and then working uh, toward uh, accountability for those abuses. And we had a lot of success on the first of those two things. Um, I was involved in some transparency litigation, some of which is still going on now, 13 years after it first started. Um, But that litigation was directed at uncovering the legal memos that supplied the basis for the CIA's enhanced interrogation program or the DOD's harsh interrogation methods um, and we were very successful in getting you know uncovering those documents you know i think to date there have been about 130 140,000 pages of government documents relating to harsh interrogation that were released through the, the litigation that we were working on at the ACLU. Um, but we had a lot much harder time on a second of those too. We had a much harder time convincing courts that they had a meaningful role to play in actually uh, finding certain uh, interrogation policies illegal or unconstitutional. Uh, and they never actually got to that question. You know what, what courts would largely do is sidestep any of that of those lawsuits by invoking any of a number of procedural hurdles in the law that make it hard to challenge. Uh, the exercise of executive authority Uh, in the context of the torture cases usually that was either the state secrets privilege uh, through which the government claimed that certain government conduct is too secret for courts to adjudicate uh, and so you just never get to the merits or they argued that uh, even uh, for the cases where we could point to a rich public record of what happened you know a record that included not just the disclosures that we were able to get from the government in our FOIA litigation, our, our Freedom of Information Act litigation, but official disclosures from the government itself about what had been going on. Um, even armed with those disclosures, uh, the government would then say, well, the people you're representing aren't entitled to sue in part because uh, the conduct they're complaining on is too close to national security power, and the courts should the court should turn a blind eye um, uh, so that's, you know, that experience, I think, formed a pretty important backdrop for the way that I think about um, the relationship between the Fourth Amendment and the First. Uh, you know, if you're, if you're a litigator, one thing that is interesting about the First Amendment is that First Amendment cases are comparatively much easier to litigate uh, and win than, than Fourth Amendment cases, for example. Fourth Amendment cases often come up in the context of uh, a criminal prosecution. Right. The people that the government is most often searching and seizing are people who the government later um, prosecutes. Uh, and if it doesn't prosecute you, but it did search and seize you, you might not have any way of knowing that that happened, especially with modern technology, where it's very easy for the government to uh, uh, never to tell you that it got your emails, for example, from Google or Microsoft. Um, and so as a litigator, you try, you know, you, it's easy to be attracted to First Amendment litigation because of how much more sympathetic courts are to free speech claims than they are to Fourth Amendment claims. So that's kind of that's a a little bit of my, you know, the experience that um, was important to me in in thinking about uh, these two different ways of approaching what I think of as a similar problem
0: it's interesting as, as you describe the the sorts of government programs and surveillance programs like the, the NSA book collection program and the Patriot Act and, and the like uh, those notwithstanding there there really wasn't any additional Fourth Amendment gloss added to, to the doctrine over the the course of those years post 9/11 really the kind of have to go back to the Jones versus US case that's up like 2000 in and, and one case I think is sort of the last major Fourth Amendment case the Supreme Court might might cite uh, it's, somewhat interesting. I suppose, as you say, the courts are tentative when they tread too closely to issues involving national security, but still uh, none of those really invoking any Supreme Court Fourth Fourth Amendment uh, doctrine is interesting.
3: Yeah. And, and, you know, the the Supreme Court is now starting to, um, it is more sensitive today about um, new technology's effect on privacy, uh, you know, than it was 15 years ago. And there, you know, there are, two relatively recent import Supreme Court cases addressing um, the Fourth Amendment. And both of them, you know, if you read the cases, you'll find a lot to be optimistic about uh, when it comes to the Supreme Court case that's going to be argued in two weeks. This one concerning the government's warrantless collection of location information from your cell phone provider. Um, Because in both of the opinions, and the ones I'm thinking of are the, the Jones case you mentioned, and also... Riley versus California, which dealt sure. with a warrantless search incident to arrest of somebody's smartphone. in um, you know, both the justices were very sensitive to uh, changing technology and not allowing it to outpace privacy protections. Uh, we're still kind of waiting for you know the, the, the kind of final piece in the puzzle, I think, will be the Carpenter case, that's argued on the 29th, uh, because it addresses uh, one of the biggest blind spots in Fourth Amendment jurisprudence, which is what about records that you, uh, in some sense voluntarily turn over to third parties? Because the legal rule for a long time has been that you generally don't have an expectation of privacy, one that you can enforce under the Fourth Amendment for information that you give to somebody else. So if you're walking on the streets and somebody sees you, you, you know, you, you don't have an expectation of privacy because you're in public. If you, if you, uh, write a check or engage in credit card transactions, the records of those transactions, reside with the bank or the credit card company and the government can therefore get them without, uh, without needing a warrant. But the problem with that principle in the digital age is that virtually everything we do today is um, in one form or another digitized, you know reduced to ones and zeros that are stored on the cloud, you know, in the cloud, on the, on the servers of third party technology companies. And so if you apply this principle, this third party doctrine to the digital age uh, you end up rendering the Fourth Amendment's protection, by and large, meaningless. You know, when, when it comes to new technology, and that's
0: where this car- the Carpenter case fits in. Okay, maybe getting into how how the First Amendment could be triggered, could be invoked in, in a case like Carpenter's. Um, so, in, in your piece, you write that governmental intrusions of, of privacy will, as you say, threaten you know perhaps first the ability of citizens to to consider and, and voice and and join together with others uh, in, in dissent. Um, and that will would, would, would trigger First Amendment implications. I just might be an obvious question, I suppose, but kinda of where, where precisely within the First Amendment does the, the right to dissent nest? Is it more in the the, the free speech clause, the the peaceable assembly clause, the, the petition for address of grievances clause, sort of a, all of them where kind of specifically does it uh, fall in there?
3: Well I I think as a strict doctrinal matter, you know, uh, it's not as important where you locate it, although courts would probably analyze it under some combination of the right to free speech and the you know the the right to assemble and you know the right to association, which is not an explicitly enumerated one but is one that derives from the ones that are there um, but the t- but the protection of it would be you know essentially identical no matter how doctrinally you exactly placed it in you know in the in the in the amendment, although the seminal supreme court cases that deal with the right to uh, dissent, I think all probably, I think they all talk of, of the right to dissent in terms of uh, the freedom of speech, you know, that phrase from the First Amendment.
0: Okay. Now, you, you also write that uh, dissent needs, uh, quote, breathing space, so, for example, the the space to, say, consider, con- conceive, and research ideas, maybe um, find and meet with those of, of like mind, uh, plan, action, protests, and, and the like. And, and surveillance certainly could counteract a, a citizen at, at, at pretty much all of those steps. But one thing that, that you write that, that seems even more insidious than that is that there's sort of an antecedent step, just, just the, the thought of a citizen that might lead him to, to go look up uh, a dissenting idea on the computer, say, um, that surveillance actually can, can change the way people think, the, the way that people who are surveilled think. And so their, their thoughts would be changed such that even before they would even get to any of those links in that chain um, they 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 would be affected by by uh, by governmental surveillance. Can you, you tell me a bit more about what you're describing there?
3: Yeah, you know, in the in the piece, I liken it to the observer effect in physics, and you know, this is the effect that um, uh, if you're trying to if you're looking at a, a particle and you're trying to you know figure out where exactly it is and where it's going, um, the more you observe it, the more you actually direct its motion. Uh, you limit its possible paths or you um, influence the possible paths that it takes. Uh, this is a kind of well-studied phenomenon in the physics world. And the same is true in, when it comes to people's thoughts. Um, a, a kind of robust or healthy free speech ecosystem requires breathing space. It requires space for people to uh, conceive of dissenting ideas and confederate with others to explore the ideas um, and you need some space free of observation to do that. Otherwise you are, you're kind of constrained in the act. Um, you know, the, the, uh, I guess the best modern day uh, reference that most people might get is, is the, you know, the, the book 1984 um, where uh, the, the fact of surveillance limits people's um, dissent. You know, one thing, one question that I like to ask people is, uh, would Martin Luther King have been able to, uh, assemble the, the movement he did, uh, if J. Edgar Hoover had the surveillance tools of the NSA today? Um, and I suspect that the answer is no. I suspect that, uh, that the tools of surveillance today, when wielded by the wrong person, uh, can be used to deliberately stifle dissent. Uh, but, and you're right too, though, that there's this kind of antecedent um, form of censorship, which is even just knowing that there are few places where you can think dissenting thoughts uh, makes it less likely that you'll do so. Um, especially because, you know, if there are fewer people thinking dissenting thoughts, it becomes harder for you to just interact with dissenting thoughts. Mm-hmm. Um, there, you know, most people are not the ones doing the dissent themselves. They, to the extent people are exposed to dissent, is the dissent of others. And so when you re- when you remove that a kind of dissenting element from the equation—it has this, um, this, kind of domino effect on 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 the entire ecosystem of, of free speech and dissent.
0: Okay. Now, you you wrote that uh, the Supreme Court has not, or the that the past Supreme Courts have not been averse to to pulling in First Amendment doctrine into the sorts of cases uh, we might consider um, wheelhouse Fourth Amendment cases, um, like official surveillance cases or um, in, instances in which. Um, the, the state would seek uh, to subpoena um, certain disclosures. Um, tell me about some of the the past case precedent that, uh, in in which um, there's there's some First Amendment doctrine pulled into to some maybe Fourth Amendment sounding type cases.
3: Yeah, well, you know, the, the classic one is the case of NAACP versus Alabama, which is when the uh, Attorney General of Alabama tried to uh, subpoena from the NAACP, uh, its membership list. Uh, the attorney general thought that the NAACP was operating unlawfully inside the state because it had failed to register. Uh, and, uh, he subpoenaed all sorts of information about the NAACP, including its membership list. And the NAACP resisted turning over its membership list. It was actually, uh, found in contempt by the court. It was fined a hundred thousand dollars. And in today's terms, it's, you know, Closer to eight or nine hundred thousand dollars, um, and the case ultimately went up to the Supreme Court. Uh, and the Supreme Court analyzed it as a First Amendment case. It said that if we allow the Attorney General of Alabama to unmask the membership of the NAACP, it'll have an obvious effect on membership. People will be reluctant to associate with the NAACP and with its advocacy mission. It's you know it's dissent, it's free speech. Um, if we enforce the subpoena. Uh, and they said that that chilling effect uh, uh, would be unconstitutional unless the government could justify it by showing a very you know compelling interest in in getting the information it was after. And the Supreme Court said the government, the state couldn't. that The Attorney General hadn't made the case uh, that uh, he needed that breadth of information um, in the course of the investigation that he was undertaking, and so it invalidated the subpoena on First Amendment grounds. Um, And today, it's rare for courts to invoke the First Amendment when it comes to criminal investigations. Um, More often, courts address uh, investigations under the Fourth Amendment. They ask whether uh, the investigation, like the surveillance or whatever the technique is at issue, they ask whether it constitutes a search or seizure within the meaning of the Fourth Amendment. And if so, then they apply the Fourth Amendment doctrine. Um, uh, And they don't often ask. uh, whether or not it's a Fourth Amendment search or seizure, is it a substantial burden on free speech rights? And if so, what does the First Amendment then require? That's that's not that's the analysis that they don't typically do today.
0: Sure. Um, you wrote that uh, that even in even in instances where the court might acknowledge that there are some First Amendment implications in a case where, say, there's some bulk surveillance that that could perhaps have you know sort of chilling effect on, on folks. Um, it, it seems like the approach is wherever there are, even if there are First Amendment implications, we'll put up the shield of the Fourth Amendment and and that will protect, that you know, will solve any of the, the First Amendment problems um, rather than saying, okay, there's First Amendment problems, let's uh, in, invoke the First Amendment doctrine and, and use that to to make sure we've, we've solved these First Amendment problems. Uh, it seems like kind of an interesting way to, to go about doing that.
3: Yeah, I think there's this unspoken assumption in court cases that the Fourth Amendment is enough for First Amendment freedom. Um, and uh, that's the premise I wanted to. I was interested in exploring uh, because it's not obvious to me why that should be the case. It's not obvious why, um, and, and you might just think logically: uh, if that were the case, why would you have two amendments to begin with? Um, you know, if if one is a subset of the other, right? I mean, if one, if one um, doesn't provide any additional protection, uh, it, it seems like it's surplus. It's unnecessary, uh, and that's not typically how. Uh, lawyers think of the First Amendment. They think of it as having its own rich, important, unique tradition in American law. Um, you know, it, it's, it's in some, uh, in some ways the centerpiece of the American constitutional tradition is its very robust protection that we have, um, for free speech, uh, except when it comes to criminal investigations where, uh, it seems to at best play, um, you know, uh, play second fiddle and, and, usually not even that. Um, so that, that was, uh, what I thought of as the, uh, paradox that I wanted to explore. Um, this idea that, that the Fourth Amendment was enough to account for First Amendment rights. Um, and, you know, the argument that I make is that it's, it's not uh, for a number of reasons. And starting with the very obvious one, that they they each cover different things. And again, this is very obvious. You know, the Fourth Amendment is directed at government conduct that invades privacy or invades property interests. Uh, and the First Amendment well, it's also concerned with those sorts of invasions. Those are those are not the threshold requirements of a First Amendment claim. Um, the First Amendment is concerned with government conduct that burdens free speech, and sometimes the government can burden free speech without um, without, without invading privacy or without invading property interests. Uh, and especially in those cases, it's important to give the First Amendment independent effect to enforce its limits. Um, but even where there is overlap, even where government conduct both invades privacy and may chill free speech, uh, I think it's important even there to give the First Amendment uh, independent effect. Um, and that's because the First Amendment requires different things than the Fourth Amendment. It requires it has different protections that are designed specifically to account for free speech concerns. The Fourth Amendment is primarily concerned about uh, a procedure, making sure there's a procedure in place for the government to, to invade privacy. Uh, with the idea that if you have the right procedure in place which often involves a judge issuing a warrant that's enough to prevent abuse and the first amendment while there are some procedural aspects of the first amendment at its bottom it's actually it's not a not just a procedural limitation it's a substantive limitation on the power of government um there are certain invasions of or or there are certain burdens on free speech that the government may not impose no matter the procedure no no matter the process it goes through in, in trying to justify that burden. Um, and that, I think, is those distinctions between uh, what our right to privacy is under the Fourth Amendment and what our right to free speech is under the First Amendment are, I think, underexplored when it comes to criminal investigations.
0: And um, one one other reason you cite for why the, the Fourth Amendment might fail to to protect certain First Amendment considerations or to solve certain First Amendment implications in cases is is, is the fact um, that the, the dynamic of aggregation um, is more familiar to First Amendment doctrinal terrain than Fourth Amendment terrain, meaning that uh, if one act of surveillance um, sort of dots all the I's and crosses the T's and has, you know, the warrant say, then that would pass Fourth Amendment scrutiny even if, you know, it wasn't just one act of surveillance that was being considered, but, but multiple or a, a program involving those acts of surveillance, whereas um, the same thing under First Amendment scrutiny uh, might invoke some sort of broader considerations, of the sort that, um, that we talked about the questions as to whether uh, the program could have a chilling effect in, in the aggregate, and so that um, for, for whatever reason, I suppose ag- aggregation just seems sort of foreign to the Fourth Amendment uh, line of cases.
3: Yeah, that's exactly right. You know, the, there's this, there's this catchphrase that, um, uh, that you'll often see if you litigate these cases that the government uses uh, zero plus zero equals zero, uh, and and by this they mean um, if you know, just to put it in concrete terms, uh, if the government collects uh, one you know uh, one day's worth of your call records, you don't have an expectation of privacy. And so if it collects uh, 100 days of your call records, you, you still don't have an expectation of privacy because zero expectation of privacy plus zero plus zero plus zero, plus zero still equals zero. Um, and, uh, you know, maybe the, the most uh, infamous case, I would say, where they used this logic was in defending the constitutionality of the NSA's call records program. This was the very first program revealed by the journalists uh, working with the Snowden documents. Um, and it was the, the program under which the NSA, uh, uh, every single day, got the call records of virtually every call made in the country. So for about a, uh, about a uh, well, maybe 12-year period, 11-year period, um, if you made a call, uh, uh, you know, during the day, by the next morning, a record of that call would be in an NSA database that it would then... Uh, search routinely for uh, phone numbers of interest. And we challenged that program when I was at the ACLU, and we made a number of arguments, including under the First Amendment and the Fourth Amendment, and we also we also argued that it wasn't, uh, that the program was just not authorized by statute and so it was illegal. Um, but when it came to the Fourth Amendment claim, the, one of the government's arguments was uh, the zero plus zero equals zero argument. Uh, and uh, there's some rhetorical appeal to that. Uh, but I think ultimately that that argument is a bit too clever by half, especially when it comes to First Amendment claims, where courts are, as you as you noted, much more uh, concerned about the aggregate effect of government conduct on free speech. Um, you know, so in uh, in the NAACP versus Alabama case that I mentioned before, the Attorney General of Alabama was concerned about a particular member of the NAACP and had gotten. Um, Know, had gone through the appropriate legal process to unmask that member to investigate them for potential crime, uh, I don't think you would have seen the same sort of First Amendment concern that the Supreme Court had um, as it did have with a subpoena that tried to unmask the membership of the entire organization. Um, it was that kind of aggregate surveillance that risked um, chilling free speech, chilling uh, dissent and association. Um, so that, that's another, I think, important dividing line between how courts apply the Fourth Amendment and how they apply the first and you know not surprisingly they tend to apply a stricter standard in the context of the First Amendment um, you know the constitutional law litigators that's a fairly you know unsurprising fact that you know the First Amendment is one of the uh, is one of the more safely guarded um, uh, constitutional rights at least as a, you know when it comes to, to how these cases are cases are actually litigated in
0: court the point about aggregation is pretty salient in, in the Carpenter cases. You know, obviously, the, the issue is, is the government obtaining cell site location information um, of the de- the defendant. Um, and one instance of that, one you know one getting the information um, from the cell carriers as to where roughly he might be in relation to a cell tower on one day, you know, sounds like one thing, but um, getting those records over the course of several months to, to be able to sort of, pretty nearly track him over a long period of time sounds like another, but as you say, would be treated as the same thing under typical Fourth Amendment doctrine.
3: Right, that's exactly right. And that's and, and it may be, you know, the, the, um, the Supreme Court may fix this problem in the Fourth Amendment context. Um, the Supreme Court may yet recognize, uh, and I think it's hinted at this in the past, uh, that there's a difference between short-term surveillance and long-term surveillance. Um, you know, In in, in 1983, there's a famous Supreme Court case involving uh, the tracking of the public movements of a criminal suspect. The government had placed a beeper on, I think, a, a barrel of something that the criminal defendant had purchased or obtained, and they used that beeper to track this guy's movement in public to see whether he was, in fact, who they thought he was. And... Uh, this guy complained and said the government should have gotten a warrant. And the Supreme Court said, no, the government doesn't need to get a warrant to track you in public because uh, you're generally observable by everyone else in public and so you don't have an expectation of privacy. Um, and the defendant in the case uh, accepted that principle, accepted the general principle that when you're moving in public, you can't expect to remain private. Um, but his main argument was uh, that principle, if, if applied... Uh, to its logical extreme would allow the government to monitor the public movement of everyone in the country at all times, 24 hours a day, 7 days a week um, and the Supreme Court uh, addressed that, it said well, if and when the government engages in this kind of dragnet type surveillance, which is what it called it uh, then there will be time you know, to apply a different constitutional principle uh, and the Carpenter case may be that time You know, they may it Now the government can collect an extraordinary amount of information about many people at once for a long period of time. Um, So it may be that we've reached a time when the Supreme Court will reconsider the difference between short-term surveillance and long-term surveillance, especially when it comes to the source of information that the Supreme Court has not historically given much protection, like your call records. Um, We'll see. I'm actually optimistic that the court will come out what I think of as the right way in that case. Um, But... Uh, it's
0: always risky to predict. One one other thing you mentioned a, a couple times now is that First, first Amendment protections um, are fundamentally more robust than, and preciously guarded by by courts than, than Fourth Amendment protections, perhaps some obvious reasons why that's oh, so. It's, it's the First Amendment. It, it seems to be um, maybe the, the most identifiable freedom that folks in America, whatever political stripe, um, believe in and adhere to, that folks can um, say what they want. They have free speech. Um, but there's some other less obvious reasons. Um, you're right that, you write know, that the Fourth Amendment protections are always invoked in criminal prosecutions and they, they can tend to look like um, really kind of an undeserved um, save that that uh, will, will get some criminal defendants that perhaps are pretty guilty off the hook based on what judges, my view, is kind of technicalities. And so courts, uh, maybe at, when they have the chance to, will will try to make sure that the Fourth Amendment protections um, granted criminal defendants are, are pretty tightly circumscribed.
3: Yeah, that's right. And, and you use the exact right word, which is technicality. There's this sense, you know, every time you hear about, you read a story that uh, the defendant was convicted, but later on appeal, the conviction was reversed on a technicality. Mm-hmm. Often that technicality is important. um And uh you know uh it's unfortunate that that word is used because it has the effect of demeaning the right right it It, it suggests that this protection is is not actually an important one. it's just a technicality that we follow. Um, but I think that mentality has um, pervaded Fourth Amendment case law um, and the reason is because uh the primary way you can enforce a Fourth Amendment right. Is by asking for suppression of evidence in a criminal case. Um, that is the main way that Fourth Amendment rights get litigated. Um, you know, somebody who uh, is you know being prosecuted for something asks for uh, likely very probative evidence to get thrown out. Um, you know, evidence that you may have no reason to question the reliability of this evidence, but the government just didn't get it in the right way, uh, and so it gets thrown out. And the effect is the societal cost, and so. There's this perception that, that Fourth Amendment rulings um, can be windfalls for criminal defendants. Um, and I think, I think this is a very hard point to prove, but I suspect that that dynamic has, um, has stunted Fourth Amendment growth. Um, and it's the exact opposite tone when it comes to First Amendment uh, jurisprudence. Um, judges pride themselves on, uh, siding with free speech claims, even in the most unsympathetic of contexts. Mm. Um, you know, one of the, uh, grimmest free speech cases to reach the Supreme Court in recent years was one brought on behalf of the Westboro Baptist Church, which mm. uh, is a group that protested, uh, at funerals of, uh, military service members. Um, and they espoused the view that the uh, deaths of these service members who had, you know, served abroad uh, were on account of, for example, uh, the United States' permissive policies on same-sex marriage or relationships. Um, really, you know, grotesque, you know, hurtful speech um, to be engaging in at the site of a funeral. Um, anywhere, but especially so at, at, the, at the site of a funeral. Uh, And the Supreme Court, uh, you know, kind of gritted its teeth and upheld the free speech claim of the Westboro Baptist Church. And it cited this long tradition that we have in this country of giving um, uh, the First Amendment broad, robust interpretation. Um, And I think it's a good thing that we have that tradition. I I think um, it's very risky when you start allowing government to uh, regulate free speech. Um, I only point to that distinction, though, because it's A very different context, Um, it's a very different attitude you get from judges when you're trying to prevail on a free speech claim than when you're trying to prevail on a Fourth Amendment privacy claim. Um, And it may, I think it may at the margins affect the outcomes in in some of these cases.
0: Okay, now now we're a court, say the Supreme Court in this case, to to follow your advice here and apply a First Amendment framework in a case like Carpenter. Um, What exactly would that framework look like? You say, okay, and um, an instance where there's official surveillance of, of this type, perhaps of a prolonged nature, that invokes some First Amendment questions. Uh, you know, what, what sort of scrutiny are we talking about? Um, what sort of needed justification might there be? And would you require some some tailoring of, of certain government action, perhaps uh, in within that framework? Um, how would that look? And how would it work? Look uh, specifically in uh, in the case of Carpenter.
3: Yeah, sure. So the framework that I would you know I would apply, and I, and I should point out that. Um, you know, this was the the less developed portion of the piece that I wrote. Um, the, the main argument I was making is that we should begin to think about how to implement the First Amendment in the context of government surveillance. Um, uh, and I only just very briefly sketched out the framework of how I think it might apply, but there might be other there might be other ways of applying it. Um, but the framework I sketched out is this one. that the first question you would ask is, does the government surveillance at issue burden free speech? Uh, You know, does it impose a chilling effect on expressive activity? Um, Does it, uh, you know, does it uh, create an ever-present, all-seeing eye of the government that has the effect of of chilling free discourse and dissent? And if so, uh, then you go to the next step, which is um, uh, uh, essentially to balance interests um, to measure the effect on free speech against the government's interest. Does the government have a compelling interest in, in nonetheless engaging in this conduct in this surveillance. Um, if it doesn't, then the, you would not allow the surveillance to proceed. And if it does have a compelling interest, then you go to the final step, which is to make sure that, um, the government's method of surveillance, its scope of surveillance is narrowly tailored to its interest. Um, and this is kind of a key, I think, you know, each of these steps is different than uh, how a fourth Amendment analysis would proceed, but especially the final one, you know, the government often has a compelling interest in engaging in surveillance of people it suspects of serious crimes. Um, and it has good reason to suspect them of those serious crimes. But the Fourth Amendment is very permissive when it comes to the actual method of that surveillance. So courts are very permissive about the breadth of information the government can collect in the course of a valid uh, law enforcement investigation, um, even when there may be obvious ways of narrowing the government's investigation so that it doesn't sweep quite as broadly or implicate as many uh, as many people. Courts generally say under the Fourth Amendment that that's not required by the Fourth Amendment. Um, the surveillance has to only be reasonable; it doesn't need to be narrowly tailored. Uh, but under the First Amendment, the general rule is. The government does need to be narrowly tailored uh, in in its methods and means, precisely so that you know there isn't any unnecessary chilling effect. Um, so that that's the you know that's, that's the framework that I would apply.
0: Do you maybe presage some potential administrative difficulties? Say in, in the case here, Carpenter, if um, the the governmental justification seemed um, genuine and and strong enough, but the court thought that you know. The, the number of, of days of records that were obtained seemed like too many. Um, it seems like a, a bit of a tricky thing to try to draw a constitutional line that would maybe keep a, a police department from using all the tools at its disposal to to track, here I think, um, a potential bank robber. Say, okay, you have you have the the technological capacity to to do these things, but we just think it, it, it imparts too much high of a social cost. So you have to kind of turn down the uh, sophistication of your computers or only use them a certain number of days or something. Is there is there some tricky line drawing that could occur with the kind of the, the tailoring part of the, the framework?
3: You know, my instinct is that I, I so I think this question, uh, whether, you know whether it's administrable to impose First Amendment constraints on government surveillance, I think this is the key question, and I I suspect that the reason why courts have been reluctant to do it in the past is precisely for this reason, that um, if you're going to do it, you want to do it in a way that um, doesn't open the floodgates to kind of constitutional reconsideration of, you know, uh, commonly accepted investigative practices. And I think that that's a fair concern, and I think courts should be thinking, you know, they should think through that question before they Um, embark on the adventure that I'm suggesting Uh, and my suspicion though is that the trickiest line drawing questions would come uh, at step one rather than step three so step one being does the government surveillance burden free speech and step three being even assuming it does and assuming the government has a valid reason to do so um, make sure it's narrowly tailored and the the reason I say that is because once you um, accept that uh you know, once you've gotten to stage three, you you're applying the First Amendment and it's just a question of how tailored the surveillance is, um, then, it, you know, it, it can often be common sense to figure out how to narrow the government's efforts to the interests it is trying to serve. And so in, in Carpenter itself, for example, the government was investigating, I think it was seven or eight different, robberies that took place throughout, I think it was Michigan and Ohio. Um, And to investigate those robberies, for whatever reason, it asked for the location of Timothy Carpenter over the course of many months. It ended up getting, uh, I think it was 127 days of his location information as stored by his his cell phone company. Um, And that is obviously overbroad. The government was investigating robberies that took place on over the course of seven total days out of these 127 days or eight, maybe it was eight days. And they very easily could have narrowed the surveillance to those seven or eight days. Um, And maybe there are other ways they could have narrowed based on other facts, you know, that are relevant to the case that, that that I don't know. Um, But there are, you know, at the very least they could have done that. Um, On the other hand, it might be harder to figure out um, when to apply the first amendment to begin with, uh, so, for example, to me, it seems obvious that 127 days of the collection of somebody's location information has a potential to burden free speech and dissent. But that is a kind of authority that when government exercises without a warrant, uh, threatens to fundamentally change the relationship between the government and its citizens. Um, maybe that's not so obvious to others. Maybe to me, it seems obvious. Um, but where's the line? Is the line that... Uh, Ten days, twenty days, five days, three days. Where you know where exactly is the line at which you would start to apply the First Amendment, um, and and how do you think about that line in the context of other technologies? What if we're not talking about cell site location information, but um, maybe we're talking about the collection of email metadata, um, or maybe we're talking about the use of automated license plate readers in public, which are now a, a very common. Investigative tool that that law enforcement uses, um, or maybe we're talking about the use of cameras that a city has placed on street corners to passively monitor the public. Um, does that trigger uh, First Amendment scrutiny and limitations? Um, so I, I, I think you know the, the, some of those can be hard questions, and I think uh, the question of line drawing there might, in fact, be what has held up this development, this area of the law um uh, but i am not i'm not positive but that's my suspicion
0: okay now um some some other amici have have proposed some i suppose um less doctrinally altering uh, op- options that the the court could avail itself of I, I spoke with andrew crocker an attorney with the electronic frontier foundation who in his amicus um Really focused on perhaps updating or curtailing the third-party doctrine to uh, to reflect kind of more the the modern realities of the, the ubiquitous sharing and existence of everyone's personal sensitive sensitive information in um, the cloud. Uh, I think Orrin Kerr encouraged um, congressional action here that uh, Congress should should set set the line as to to what's permissible in, in this space. Um, you know those. Ideas that would would do some good. Do you think uh, are those um, would, would those fixes be worthwhile, um, or do you think that the the problems that you outlined would still would still exist notwithstanding them?
3: Yeah, I, I think those are absolutely essential. I mean, I think courts should, as Andrew said, recognize that um, uh, the third party doctrine doesn't apply neatly in the digital age, and they should give the Fourth Amendment its full. Uh, you know, interpret it fully in the digital age. Um, I also agree with Oren that, uh, legislatures have a role to play. Now, his view is that only legislatures have a role to play and that the courts don't have a role to play when it comes to, uh, records held by third parties. I disagree with him on that, although I do, but I do agree that, um, you know, legislatures too have, have a responsibility to, um, uh, protect privacy in the digital age. I think all of that is good, and I think that you know that would go some way toward addressing the problems of you know of overreaching surveillance in the digital age. But the point of my piece was that even uh, even if you uh, interpret the Fourth Amendment to apply in this way um, to call records, for example, in um, in the Carpenter case, uh, that still wouldn't address, still wouldn't fully protect free speech, freedom of the press, uh, freedom of association in the digital age. And that's, you know, for some of the reasons we were discussing earlier. So, for example, in Carpenter's case, if the government had gotten a warrant, then Carpenter might not have a Fourth Amendment claim, Uh, you know, under at least as being litigated. The briefing in the case suggests that if the government had gotten a warrant, it would that would have legitimized its collection of 127 days worth of uh, his his. Uh, cell site location information. And I'm not sure that's the right result under the First Amendment, where it seems that there are obvious ways to more narrowly tailor the government surveillance, as we were discussing a minute ago. Um, So I I still think there's a difference between how the Fourth Amendment and the First Amendment protect the respective freedoms that they are directed at protecting. And that's why I think it's important, um, even if you fix some of the problems with the Fourth Amendment, to figure out how to give full effect to the First Amendment in these modern-age
0: cases. Yeah, do, do you think that suggests somewhat of an inevitability that at some point the the fourth you know the courts will just have to give up trying to to update the the Fourth Amendment designed to you know, protect physical items in homes um, and, and look outside of its boundaries for protection in, in the modern digital age when the things being protected start to to bleed more, more into just the the sort of rights that that sound more in First Amendment? Well, like you say, the right to to dissent, or do you think that courts will will hold on and, and try to continue to update the the Fourth Amendment to to, to, to do the work that you think the, the First Amendment should? That's a good question.
3: You know, it, it may be that you could um, maybe you could address many of my concerns uh, by just interpreting the Fourth Amendment differently, right? You, you could incorporate some of the First Amendment concerns through the Fourth Amendment. Um, you know, one way to do this, is the Supreme Court has said, you know, in, in a an important, you know, First Amendment case, the Supreme Court, uh, said that when government investigations intrude upon First Amendment rights, then the, uh, court should apply Fourth Amendment requirements with what the court called scrupulous exactitude. Um, and, you know, I discussed this case as, in my piece as, a sign that the court had given up on on giving the First Amendment independent force in the context of surveillance. But it is a hook if the court wanted to change that. The court could use this phrase, scrupulous exactitude, um, to import more of the First Amendment freedoms into the Fourth Amendment. So, for example, it could say, well, by scrupulous exactitude, uh, what we now mean is narrow tailoring you know, the, of, the, of the kind that we would do if you had a valid First Amendment claim. Um, and currently that's not how the court interprets that phrase, you know, the, by scrupulous exactitude the court has has made clear that what it really means is just apply the Fourth Amendment requirements faithfully. Um, and you might wonder uh, what work is the First Amendment doing if all it gets you is applying the Fourth Amendment faithfully? Um, and the answer is I think none. Um, uh, but like I said, you could imagine the court reinterpreting that phrase to to have more First Amendment bite to it. Um, I think there would still be questions about whether the Fourth Amendment would be enough to protect First Amendment freedoms, even in that world, um, because to get to that scrupulous exactitude plus, you know, plus real First Amendment bite, um, you would still need to show a Fourth Amendment privacy invasion. And that might uh, that might prevent the courts from recognizing that sort of um, uh, protection uh, for uh, government conduct that doesn't invade privacy even though it does chill free speech
0: okay uh, just just one last one for you you know so it's pretty hazardous to try and forecast how courts might feel about particular cases uh, but how, how, how do you think the, uh, the Supreme Court might might regard? This case arguments are coming up, and what, uh, what might you be looking for? And arguments um, that, that might signal which way um, particular justices or, or the court uh, might, might be going uh, on, on, on this case.
3: Yeah, so I, my suspicion is that the court is going to agree with Carpenter. I think the court is likely going to say um, the fact that, that Carpenter's cell phone company had these records, these cell site location records, is not enough on its own uh, to eliminate any expectation of privacy he had in those records. Uh, and they may go the next step, too, and say, uh, when the government collects these records, at least over a long period of time, that collection um, triggers full Fourth Amendment protection and requires the government to get a warrant. I think, the, I think the the court will say something along that path. It may not answer every question raised by the case, but I think it'll it'll answer you know its answers will be consistent with what i i just set out that's my suspicion and, and as i said before it's um you know it's always risky to uh to predict what the supreme court will do um but, but that's my that's my suspicion
0: okay well we'll have a chance to find out soon enough uh, here when the case in the the court hears argument um in this uh, one of several blockbusters in, in the term this year um but for now uh, alex abdo of the Knight First Amendment Institute in New York. Thanks so much for uh, being so generous with your time on our podcast. I appreciate it.
3: Thanks so much for having me, Brian. really appreciate it.
0: And with that, our show for November 24th, 2017, is complete. Thanks so much for tuning in. It's much appreciated. I hope you enjoyed it. And I hope you have a great, long Thanksgiving weekend. I'm Brian Cardale. look forward to speaking to you next Friday. Have a great week.